They found it. They found it, and I, I have to tell you, the implications for global Christianity are nothing short of devastating. I'm talking, of course, about the archaeological discovery of a tomb in Jerusalem bearing the name Jesus of Nazareth, son. The Greek inscription actually reads huios, means biological son, of Joseph, carpenter, technically tecton, and Mary. I don't know if I mentioned this, but the tomb, which has been found, is not empty, as Christianity maintains. But within it lay a set of bones belonging to a Jewish man, approximately 33 years old. So, did those words get your attention? Because I can tell you they got my attention, at least the first time I read them. They're not true, of course. They're fiction. The words belong to Paul Elmire. And actually, they're the words with which he begins his historical novel titled A Skeleton in God's Closet. Now, if you've never read it, I want to encourage you to do so. Paul is a longtime acquaintance of mine with whom I've actually had the privilege of working with him on an outreach project. He served as professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, retired in 2011. But let me just tell you, Paul, he's authored 16 different books. He's influentially appeared in several documentaries. He has well represented the voice of biblical Christianity. What I love about his book, A Skeleton in God's Closet, is the premise that it's based upon. You know, over the last several weeks, we've been examining the question of the historical accuracy of the Bible. And what Professor Meyer would tell us, and I think we know this, is that we live in a theological culture and climate where it's become popular to question the accuracy of the Christian scriptures. I'm going to take as an example the 2000 documentary, Who Is This Jesus?, produced by Dr. D. James Kennedy and featuring Dr. Paul Meyer. So why was the documentary produced? Well, it was produced because ABC, the news program, had released a documentary titled, quote-unquote, The Search for Jesus, questioning the reliability of the scriptures. And Dr. Kennedy and Dr. Meyer said, mm -mm, we are going to we are going to contest that. That was the year 2000. Now, let me tell you that there's been a great deal of change in our American culture since then. In 2000, 80% of the U.S. population identified as Christian. Today, 2023, that number is 63% and declining rapidly. In fact, by the year 2070, the number projected is 46%. Here's what that means. If the reliability and historicity of the Bible was in question in the year 2000, and it was, that's even more so the case today. Things are changing fast in this country. But one thing has not changed. The role that archaeology plays in establishing the reliability of the Bible. So let me ask you a true-false question. Over the course of history, archaeology has played the role of establishing the historicity of the Bible. What do you think? True or false? By the way, I did try this out anecdotally. I asked a number of individuals just randomly this true-false question. Here's what I discovered. Most, in fact, the overwhelming majority said false. In other words, they believe that the Bible's a good book. They believe the Bible contains excellent lessons on morality and spirituality, but trust its historical details? No, they would say. And why not? Because archaeology 
is something of a more objective nature than spirituality. It tells us that the Bible is what it claims to be, a historical book. Now, ask random individuals and they will tell you no, no. Archaeology has demonstrated that the Bible has gotten it wrong in several cases. It's disproved the historicity of the Bible, and yet they are not right. Has archaeology disproved the historicity of the Bible, or is it an ally? In actuality, the opposite, proving, upholding, and lifting up the historicity of the biblical text. Pointedly, what I'm asking is the question, is archaeology itself a skeleton in God's closet, or is it a skeleton key by which we're able to unlock the secrets of history toward actually establishing the historical nature of the biblical text? In this week's episode of God-Sized Living, I want to conclude our short look at the historicity of Scripture based upon Daniel 11 by looking at the relationship between archaeology and the biblical text. What we're asking as we look at this chapter is, how accurate is the historicity described by Daniel through inspiration in this scripture? So let me tell you that one of the things that really got me thinking about this question of historicity is a just released book written by a good friend of mine named Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. I've known Dr. Johnson now for over 15 years. I consider him to be one of America's premier apologists. Uh, The book Dr. Johnson wrote is titled Body of Proof, and it's based upon the work that he did for his doctoral dissertation at Oxford University. Here's what I love about the book. It's focused on providing historical data which upholds Christianity's central claim, namely the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul says it this way. He says, quote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice what what Paul's doing here. Really two things. First, he's making a historical assertion. He's telling his hearers, selves included, that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a historical and verifiable event. Secondly, notice that he twice makes the statement in accordance with the scriptures. Now, why is that important to Paul? Because the scriptures, from the very first recorded words on, Genesis 3, assert that a bodily resurrection will take place. If it does not, if the bodily resurrection does not take place, the scriptures are rendered invalid. They're at most just nice words about living a moral life. Paul goes on, of course, in verse 13 and following to make an even more emphatic statement about the necessity of a historically verifiable resurrection. He says, quote, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom... He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to these words, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Listen, for Paul, even as for us, historicity matters, and it matters immensely. 
This is the focus of Dr. Johnson's book, Body of Proof. In it, he looks at seven specific reasons that Jesus' resurrection is the most attested to event in all of history. His work overturns many of the lame efforts that skeptics have made over the years toward challenging the historical resurrection. And in chapter nine of his book, he specifically takes readers through archaeological evidence, evidence which overwhelmingly supports the historical resurrection of our Lord. And I'm going to say this, Dr. Johnson's work does not stand alone, not by any stretch of the imagination. Allow me to ask you what might seem at first, an odd question. It's not, it's not meant to be odd, but it might sound that way to you at first. Here, here's the question. How familiar are you with the Timna Valley? Does that sound familiar to you? The Timna Valley. So here, here's what I discovered when I asked most people that question. What I received back from them is a somewhat blank look, a stare. Some will start to answer. They'll say something like, oh, Timna, Timna Valley. Is it that where... And then then they'll stop and they'll say, never mind. The reality is, I don't expect you to know the answer to the question. I don't expect Timna to be familiar to you, but maybe it should be. Located approximately 30 kilometers, 19 miles north of the Gulf of Aquaba in the city of Elliot, Timna holds one of the most significant archaeological discoveries of our time. Some 3,200 years ago, Timna served the nation of Egypt through its vast array of copper mines. Pointedly, it was one source of Egypt's vast wealth. The mine lay as a secret to the world until 2009, when an Israeli archaeologist named Ezra Ben Yosef arrived at the site that we now know as the Timna Mines. He was drawn to the site as a student of paleomagnetism, a discipline within science that investigates changes in our Earth's magnetic field. Now, little could Ben Yosef have known what he was about to uncover. You see, for many years, modern historians, known as mentalists, contested the Bible's historical assertion of a united monarchy, one such as described in books like First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. As much as the Bible asserts the historicity of the bodily resurrection, so it asserts that under kings David and Solomon, Israel developed into a large and united kingdom, feared and respected across the globe. Modernist controverted this assertion. You might ask, on what grounds? The answer, archaeological grounds. As late as the 1970s, minimalist scholars asked the question, you know, if Israel was under David and Solomon, a united kingdom with far-reaching wealth, Where's the archaeological evidence to support such? Instead, minimalists suggested that Israel in the year 1000 BC was nothing more than a group of Bedouin tribes with David and Solomon functioning as little more than local sheiks. And the minimalists had a point. There were no remains to date that might support the Bible's historical contention. In turn, the assertion of the minimalists led toward a more general contest of the whole of scriptures. If one single historical contention of the Bible is disproven, the whole of its many contentions are called into question. Then came Timna. It said Timna that sherds of pottery were discovered that clearly linked this old Egyptian site with, guess who, an Israeli king named Solomon. In fact, the more archaeologists uncovered in Timna, the more clear it became. The copper mines that were discovered were actually the copper mines of King Solomon. At Timna, evidence 
was uncovered, continues to be uncovered, that unquestionably supports the Bible's contention that Israel was not simply a small wandering group of Bedouins, but was in fact a large and wealthy and united kingdom. In simple terms, Timnah demonstrated what every archaeological discovery has always <clears throat> demonstrated, namely the historical contentions of the Bible. They're reliable to their last letter. In fact, I love the words of archaeologist Nelson Glauck, who in his book, Rivers in the Desert, states, quote, as a matter of fact, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference, end quote. Archaeology is not a foe to the scriptures. In the clearest sense of the word, it remains to this day one of the Bible's great allies, demonstrating time and again just <clears throat> how reliable the words of scripture are. <clears throat> Back to Daniel. You may be asking, so Luke, what does all this have to do with the book of Daniel? In one word, history. When we turn to the 11th chapter of Daniel, we find ourselves standing with him before Jesus. Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Daniel's old. He is, we believe, some 70 years old and getting ready to die. Before he dies, Daniel becomes overcome with grief. It seems to him that his people, the Israelites, have so offended God that they not only have ended up in Babylon as slaves, but perhaps they'll never return to Jerusalem. He wonders, is Israel gone forever? Or is there hope? Is there hope that someday Jerusalem might be rebuilt? Is there hope that someday the chosen people might return home? Is there hope that the temple might be reborn? Is there hope that Israel might once again be used of God as a light to the world. What's significant about Daniel's question is the relationship that it holds to the historical reliability of scriptures. Without question, Daniel must know that from Genesis forward, God has clearly suggested that the spiritual Israel will be his instrument of grace in the world. If this contention is proved to be wrong in any part, then the whole of the Bible's contention, including that of the resurrection, is proven at best suspect. So what does God do? Certainly, he could have let Daniel just die, an old man, without ever answering him. He did not owe Daniel an answer. However, in his grace, he shows up. In front of Daniel stands warrior Jesus holding history in his hands. When you read the verses that make up chapter 11 of Daniel's narrative, you're reading what I like to describe as a historical map. It's a map of time, as marked by the rise and fall of kingdoms that will come and go, long after Daniel's body's in the grave, and his soul before God in heaven. It's my contention that when you analyze chapter 11, you find incredible and accurate correspondence between the words of Jesus to Daniel and the very way that history unfolds, beginning with the fall of Babylon to Persia, and concluding with the very times in which we live today. Whether Alexander the Great, who is the subject of chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, or Bernice, the daughter of Ptolemy II, who is the subject of verse 6 in chapter 11, or the Battle of Rome with Antiochus III, the subject of chapter 11, verses 13 to 19, the Bible does not miss a historical step, not one. Instead, it remains to this day the single most reliable history book in the world. And archaeology simply confirms it, not that God needs it to do so. So let me leave you today with a couple of what I hope are relevant questions. 
next week, I want to pick up by looking at one of the key characters historically spoken to by Jesus. But before we get there, I want you to think about these questions with me. Question one, in what ways are you aware of contentions being made today toward the historical accuracy or inaccuracies of the Bible? Here's why I ask. It's a principle of battle. Sun Tzu, who is respected as a great military general, strategist, philosopher, is credited with writing a book titled The Art of War. And what I've always loved about his name is its translation. Literally, Sun Tzu means master son. Because as Christians, we are actually sons of the master. Yes, my play on Sun Tzu. I found that paying attention to his words in our service as soldiers of the sun holds wisdom as such. Consider Sun's words about knowing your enemy. He writes, quote, If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle, end quote. You know, without question, we as followers of the Son, we're in a battle as much as Daniel was in his time. I've discovered that part of that battle is a battle with those who contest the historicity of Scripture. There are, so to speak, enemies of the gospel. That's the question, do you know them? I do believe that it's important to become familiar with the writings of some of those individuals that we've discussed in this short overview of the historicity of Scripture. Men like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, or Bart Ehrman. These, after all, all are the voices that our children and grandchildren will be exposed to in universities across this great land of ours. Don't be afraid of them or their books or their teachings. They don't hold the power to cause you to question or lose your faith. Instead, I find that as I read them, it actually helps me strengthen the very convictions that lay at the heart of my faith. So get, get to know some of these voices. Question two, how prepared are you to stand your ground. Sun Tzu says, know your enemy, but he also says, know yourself. Good advice for battle. And I believe that part of knowing ourselves is knowing why we believe what we believe. Ultimately, please hear this, Christianity is not about intellectual assent or knowledge. It's first and foremost always about faith. At the same time, faith is not without reason. What I found helpful is finding that place of tension in our lives where our faith is in no way reliant upon our ability to prove or demonstrate any part of who we are as followers of Jesus, but at the same time, working toward gaining insights, toward discovering resources that place us into a position where we can appeal to the reasonableness of why we believe what we believe. When it comes to the historicity and reliability of the Bible, it's good to be able to point to things like Timnah archaeological discoveries that have time and again provided support to the Bible's contentions. As I record this podcast, allow me to give you a specific challenge toward this end. We're just a few short weeks away from Easter. What a great day, and I can't wait for this celebration. So my challenge to you is threefold. Number one, go to your favorite bookstore, brick and mortar or online, and pick up a copy of Dr. Jeremiah Johnson's new book, Body of Proof. Number two, read it. I think you'll find it chocked full of good stuff that will lend support to the reasonableness of your faith. Number three, buy a second copy and give it away. 
I think all of us have people in our lives that go through doubts and questions that are maybe skeptical. So it's okay. You know, Jesus sought these people out. He didn't hide from them and criticize them. He sought them out. And I, I think that we ought to as well. Whether it's somebody in your family, extended family, maybe it's somebody that you know at work, somebody who you go to the gym with or you, you go to lunch with. But I'm a copy. Body of proof. Put it in their hands. It's my gift to you. Don't try to tell them what they have to believe or why. I just don't want you to read this book. I want to hear what you have to think about it. And let God work through it. I want to thank you for listening and being a listener to this podcast. I want you to know you're a blessing to me. I'm going to continue to pray for you, and especially as, as Easter begins to, to come our direction, I'm going to ask that you pray for me as well. And until next week, I pray that you have a God-sized week.